Welcome to Bio-Citizen Banter, a podcast dedicated to environmental philosophy, featuring lively discussions between people active in the effort to bring biotic health and diversity to our communities and commonwealth. I'm here with Dr. Jerry Phillips of the University of Connecticut, who once upon a time was my professor when I was studying there, and he is a very fascinating intellectual and a, and a fantastically talented teacher of history and literature, it, mostly in the Anglo-American tradition. And I was privileged to take a course called The City in Literature. And we went through a kind of panorama of texts that I am fabulously rewarded even to this day by just um, looking back and remembering all the tales of, of Dickens and of Upton Sinclair and et cetera, because I'd never had a class where we actually studied the human narratives and tried to focus on the environment that the narratives were taking place in. So it wasn't just the stories of humans in and of themselves, it was a very kind of environmental approach. I'm going to introduce you in a second, Jerry, because we have to have kind of a, a longer prelude to this biocinism banner than usual, because we're going to discuss the biopolitics of COVID-19. Jerry and I have had a bunch of fascinating discussions behind the scenes, and we thought that we would actually set a context uh, for the discussion we're going to have by referring to the UN agency director, Guy Ryder, who has a, an observation about what our large human population on the earth is going through en masse. And he said that he hoped governments would recognize that they needed to reconstruct their economies around better working practices and quote, not a return to the pre-pandemic world of precarious work for the majority. He also said the pandemic has laid bare just how precarious, just how fragile, just how unequal our world of work is. It's commonly said that this pandemic does not discriminate. And in medical terms, that is right. We can all be struck by the pandemic. But in terms of the economic and social effects, this pandemic discriminates massively. And above all, it discriminates against those who are at the bottom end of the world of work, those who don't have protection, those who don't have resources, and the basics of what we would call the essentials of normal life. So that's our first context. Our second context is Foucault, who gave philosophers a term called biopolitics. Biopolitics recognize that all human societies are fundamentally biological on one hand, and on the other hand, that politics is the way that societies determine how humans in particular are given or denied vitality or life. And so the UN representative goes straight into biopolitics something that we're somewhat aware of in the back of our mind, we're going to try and bring it to the fore and give all of our listeners a kind of handle 
on the terms so that we can all think uh, more clearly in, in biopolitical ways. Biopolitics of COVID-19, Jerry and I kind of, we agreed, involves the way our government determines who lives and who dies, what vanishes and what endures and what is created as it infects us. So this is a giant discussion we're about to have. But before, Jerry, we get into any of that, I really would like just to introduce you into the bio-citizen community. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Are there some things that happened that made you the environmental philosopher we're talking to today? Good morning, and good morning to the bio-citizen community. And I just want to thank Kurt for inviting me to do this interview. It's a, an honor and a pleasure to talk on, on this issue. And But also, I think you know, at the moment, is, is momentous. We're living through a, a historic moment. Pandemics are not rare in human history, but they, you know, they, they happen under certain conditions. And those conditions require a confluence of events. And we have, that confluence of events has taken place. And so this is where we are. In terms of the, the, the my, my interest in these issues, environmental issues, issues of the city, I think, you know, I was, I was a young child and I grew up in, in London and in, in very much an urban environment, but I was always drawn to the natural world that could be found in the city if you knew where to look. And so I was the kind of kid that collected spiders and snakes and would hunt over the, 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 the junkyard looking for, for various animals. I kept hedgehogs. So I, I, I was a kind of bio-citizen child in, in my own way. When I got to middle school, I joined an after-school nature club and became a little more focused in terms of, you know, began to understand the ecology of rivers because we had a river behind the school and we would go back there and, and do samples of plant, animal life and so forth. So this is a, a, a natural trajectory for me. I've always had an interest in the natural world. And, you know, teaching the nature course, I think, is part of a kind of uh, a life experience. But it's also because I think the environment, we and I have talked about this, the environment has become an unavoidable political issue. We're at a moment in, in the history of the planet, really, where conditions for, for life as we know it are under serious threat. So I think that it's, in some ways, it's a natural development if, if you're paying attention to the world to look at ecological issues because ecological issues are, are really the issues. As the UN uh, official said, COVID-19 affects our entire species, but quote, discriminates against those who are at the bottom end of the world of work. And I was studying with you the city in the novel, one of the interpretive frames that we used was social Darwinism. Social Darwinism seemed to be part of the narrative and it seemed to be part of how we were understanding the narrative. Can you tell listeners what your understanding of social Darwinism is and, and how it is or isn't operative in the Trump administration's handling of the COVID-19 crisis? Uh, let, me, let me back up a little bit and, and, and sort of work towards it. I think, I, I think the first thing I'd like to think about, because I, I think that the pandemic raises this issue, is what used to be called 
the, the, the march of civilization. Um, this was the, the idea that, because this relates obviously to the, the question of the city, that as civilization spreads across the world and often forced through the, the, the cruelties of imperialism, but the, the idea was that, of course, civilization represented progress, and central to progress is the idea of the, the mastery of nature, right? That insofar as nature was mastered, dominated, controlled, this opened up new possibilities for human society. So, you know, we're thinking of Sir Francis Bacon's new organ where Bacon argues that nature, in order to be controlled, has to be obeyed. So the first thing is the understanding of natural law, and then the understanding of natural law giving you power over nature. So I think one of the things that we have seen play out in, in that period is our increasing understanding of nature, allowing us to incorporate nature into society so that one, I mean, one, one, one outcome of this is that it's, it's difficult to speak anymore of primeval nature. Everything in the natural world that we see is to some degree an effect of human activity. I mean, the climate is most, the most obvious example of this because the climate is planetary and human activity is altering the climate. So there's really no such thing anymore as a nature that is unincorporated. So the reason why I'm putting it like that is because the... As we incorporate nature into civilization or into civilizational imperatives, what we have missed is the significant feedback loops that are a consequence of that. In other words, the, the ways in which nature cannot be in fully incorporated, and in fact, civilization is dependent upon nature. So we as a society have created a disjuncture between the kinds of social life forms that we've developed and the natural conditions for those social life forms. We, in, in other words, we're undermining the very conditions for civilization. So th that's the first thing that I would want to, to, to say is that we're, the, 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 the pandemic, pa a pandemic is an instance of a, of a civilization that has a, a, has a compromised relationship to nature. I mean, viruses are eternal in the sense that there are there are always viruses in nature. It's you know, and viruses are, are interesting because they're on the edge of life. I mean, what what is a virus? A virus is a mutant or or, or a parasitic form of, of DNA or RNA, right? So, so it's not even clear if a virus counts as life, but it's clearly on the edge of life because it. it only replicate itself inside a host. Mm -hmm. Why this is an issue is that, okay, viruses are always in nature, then we've managed to keep them at bay by developing a form of civilization that prevents viruses entering into human culture. So something has gone wrong in our relationship to nature so that something like COVID-19 could, or coronavirus, could could find its host in human culture and, 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 and in a sense, threaten the integrity of our world. So that's the, the way that I would first come at this issue, is to try to understand what, what is at stake in our relationship to 
nature so that a virus can enter in when normally we have the capacity to block the entrance of, of viruses. Wow, Jerry. Well, as usual, you have thrown such a wide net. You begin there with Francis Bacon. So that's uh, an advisor to Queen Elizabeth. So we're talking around 1600. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's been 400 years of the Anglo tradition that we're discussing COVID-19 from. So it, we're very familiar with this idea of trying to control nature and improve nature. We have ended up with the world that we have. And your observation about how has this particular virus managed to appear, <laughs> what activities actually released it. Conservation biologists have been saying for many decades that when the, the structures, the interrelationships between species are severely disrupted, we end up stripping a lot of the genetic integrity and fabric that would protect us. Stripping these many layers of integrity, we end up accessing forces and entities that are sometimes like three and a half billion years old. What's bizarre about global warming is that really what we've been doing is we've been digging up the Jurassic era. You know, and like put and pumping it back into the sky as you know, very concerted activity for over 200 years. These are maybe perspectives that that we have to really take into account, not as a background concept, but really on the forefront of this is how we've ended up here. Yeah, well, I think also we, you know, what we've missed is we've tended to think of the relationship. This is the the perhaps one of the outcomes of the, the Baconian Cartesian model of, of the natural world, is we tended to think of the relationship between civilization and nature in a binary fashion. The, you know, the one somehow excludes the other, and that what we've missed is a kind of more dialectical, interactive, dynamic relationship, that the relationship is always in, in process. The reason why I put it like that is, is because Civilization has, in, has historically also created the, the opportunity for pandemics. I mean, there's, for example, if you think about the South China area, China um, and, and the kind of farming that developed in that area with, with massive rice paddies. And so that's of interest because the rice paddies, as we know, if, if, if they're fertilized in a certain way, they will attract insects the insects will attract birds. The birds will eat the insects and, can, and perhaps contract viruses. The viruses can then be passed on to swine. The swine can then pass on the viruses to humans. So that kind of zoonotic transmission of disease is in some ways an outcome of civilization. Pandemics can only really happen when there are aggregations of people uh, and, when, and when there's sufficient travel among people. I mean, as we say, viruses have always existed, but a, a global pandemic depends upon certain conditions. Humans have to amass in herds, and that's really what a city is. A city is a giant herd of human beings, um, and then there has to be travel between the herds to create the opportunity for the virus to move. So the re reason I'm putting it like that is, is that we have transcended nature in some ways 
But in other ways, we've also created opportunities for, for nature to, to get control of civilization or to undermine it. So this, it, it, it means that we have to pay a great, a great deal more attention to local landscapes, as well as thinking through relationships between regions of the world. So for example, Wuhan. Wuhan is a region roughly the size of New York City. I mean, it's a, it's a vast urban conglomerate, but it has been encroaching upon wildlife regions in China. And it's that contact with the, with the declining forest, which puts us into contact with the bats and possibly also the civets, which could be vectors for the virus. So it isn't enough to just think that by removing the forest and replacing it with concrete and steel, we've somehow created a sanitary or disinfected environment. It may just mean that we've incorporated the wildlife into our urban ecology. And, you know, and when one of the obvious ways in which that takes place is through is from, uh, the wildlife trade in meat. And that's where a lot of our, our that's, that's where the transmissions can take place. So, you know, civilization gives us the, the factory farm, it gives us industrial agriculture, but in doing so, it also creates the conditions of the pandemic. I mean, it, it, saying, saying that uh, the virus is a Chinese virus misses the point. A pandemic could break out in the United States we, because, the, because the sheer concentration of biomass in factory farms creates enormous opportunities. I mean, as we know, the amount of antibiotic use in a factory farm is significant to keep that potential down. It's only a matter of time before we find a virus that is resistant to human treatment. And that virus could, would, could easily leap from pigs, which have a very similar immune system to humans, into the human population. So I think that there's a lot to learn from this pandemic. I mean, Mike Davis wrote a book 15 years ago called The Monster at Our Door, and it was about the avian flu. And so while we're looking at the avian flu, we missed COVID-19. So who knows what we, we are missing right now if we're not paying attention to the way that we're relating to the, the declining forest. We have controlled nature to this moment where we were pretty much complacent and believed that we could maybe move into that Tesla world where we wouldn't even have to drive anymore and every, we would live a, a science fiction utopia, not dystopia. But nature has its own agenda and we certainly don't understand <laughs> how nature functions. And so here we are with COVID-19 again and we are in a crisis. This identity that we have, which is very much an urban identity, even if you, know, you and I kind of live in suburbia, we are constituted by a history of ideas that go back to Bacon and before, et cetera. And so it's not just like our very identities are at stake physically and also intellectually and culturally. We have a political leadership, I'm going to steer us back to social Darwinism if I can, that is reacting to this crisis in a, in a way that in some ways is completely understandable, but in, in other ways is completely incomprehensible. And one of the things that we're seeing, of course, is our 
our president and politicians standing next to him squaring off against uh, scientists and health experts. And it's very disorienting and very disheartening to see that there isn't like just an obvious like, yeah, this is what we're going to do <laughs> because this is our problem. Our political leadership seems to be incapable of coming up with a co coherent plan that everybody can follow. So I won't ask a question. It'll just be, there's our problem, Jerry. The theme that the pandemic raises for me and why it's fundamentally an environmental issue is the relationship of human beings to certain landscapes and how those landscapes are mediated through our relationship to animals, right? So that's really the kind of baseline for this. But how did we arrive at the, the you know, how, 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 have we, how have we got to the point where we've forgotten what it, what it is to, to live within nature? And I think that we've forgotten because of the nature of our social system. So this is where I think we can make this segue into the social Darwinist question. I think, I think one of the problems about the way we think the human relationship to landscape and therefore, thereby the human relationships to, to animals is that we have fallen into the Malthusian fallacy uh, about, about what it is for humans to be natural beings. I mean, Malthus, because of the, the way he was interpreted in, in the 1960s by Paul Ehrlich and then in the famous book, The Population Bomb, and then later by Garrett Hardin's uh, famous essay, The Tragedy of the Commons. I think that those two works have had an influence that has largely been deleterious in, in the sense that they have made us look in one direction. And as we look in that direction, we don't look in others. So here, here's where I see the population fallacy has become a problem for, for us in terms of thinking this issue, uh, you know, the, fun, the fundamental relationship of humans to landscape, which makes something like the pandemic possible, perhaps even inevitable. So I think the first thing is that it, Malthus has been misunderstood as an ecologist. He was not an ecologist. He was a, he was a political economist. So uh, the principle on the population, the principle of, on population um, which he published in 1798, um, was not motivated by ecological concerns. Malthus didn't look at the world around him and say, well, there's too many people and we need to, to limit population for the good of the earth. He's, he, he, wasn't, he was fundamentally coming at the issue as a political economist. And what did, what did political economy amount to? Political economy was essentially the the science of natural society, as Adam Smith thought it. The science of natural society. In other words, what was the society that most, that most was most appropriate for the human essence as people like Smith and Malthus understood it? And Malthus was committed to the what you know the familiar capitalist worldview. That the, that the world is divided between those who own property and those who don't, um, between private property and uh, the commons. And, you know, essentially that, uh, that this was the natural order of society. So Mal 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 what Malthus was really doing in that essay was challenging 
the, the idea that social justice was possible by reorganizing society away from nature as he understood it. In other words, he said societies must be hierarchical, they must have uh, private property, they, mu they must have um, divisions between people and so forth. And he was particularly attacking the sort of the left wing of the Enlightenment as represented by people like Thomas Paine and most famously, William Godwin. William Godwin, who is the, uh, the father of, of um, Mary, uh, Mary Shelley, or Mary Godwin, Godwin, and was married to Mary Wollstonecraft, um, you know. But Godwin basically argued that the natural society was something like a libertarian anarchist society, that the governments basically existed to impose upon people, that hierarchies were unnatural, uh, exploitation was, was uh, economic exploitation was destructive of human well-being, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Malthus was basically arguing against that point of view. He argued the way society was is the way it must be. And so he argued that by saying that the reason why it has to be that way is because of population. And he says in that famous argument that population grows uh, geometrically, we would say exponentially today. So that, in other words, population grows from two to eight to 16, you know, it, whereas uh, food subsistence only grow arithmetically, right? Which is a completely unproven dogma, right? That, that's the first thing. I mean, it may be true that population can grow exponentially under certain conditions, um, because I think it, it's, it's, a question of population is a, is a biopolitical question. You know, which, as, you, as you mentioned, who lives, who dies. These are decisions that are not simply decisions of nature. In some respects, they're outcomes of social decisions, social action. So Malthus makes this argument that there's a, a, an eternal mismatch between human population and the means of subsistence in nature. And so he says that the, this is why you cannot have an egalitarian society, because there will always be a tendency of population to outstrip the means of subsistence. So he says that there are two things that prevent this happening. He says what he calls preventative checks, and preventative checks are ways of preventing population from growing. So they can be things like um, deferring marriages, contraception, um, you know, etc. And then he says that there are what he calls positive checks, and positive checks are, are he puts under the general category of misery. And so that's poverty, um, starvation, war, and interestingly, plague. One of the arguments that Malthus makes is he basically his argument is is that in order to make society relatively stable given that there'll always be this tendency towards society, towards disequilibrium, is you have to put both preventative and positive checks on population. And if you don't put the preventative checks, the positive checks will kick in. So in other words, if you don't prevent the poor from breeding, which is the language that he uses, and it's, you know, and, and, and it's the language which is picked up in social Darwinism, because it basically reduces humans to a kind of animal being. So if you don't produce checks on breeding, then things such as 
war or, or poverty, that demoralization will come in instead. And Malthus uh, counseled in, and I think, the, you know, I think the sixth edition of the principle of population, he said one of the things we should do is we should build the housing of the poor in miasmic conditions. We should build the housing of the poor close together. We should let the plague run through the housing of the poor because he saw all of this as a way of keeping population down. Now he's not doing, as I mentioned, he's not doing this for ecological reasons. He's doing this for social control reasons. He's doing this because he thinks that if you have vast numbers of the poor, that society is necessarily unstable. So he was very critical of welfare and charity because he saw this as keeping population artificially high. Right. So the, re well, the reason I'm, I think this is a story that needs to be told is that that argument is essentially an argument that scarcity is, is, is natural to the human condition. That sc scarcity is natural in both an economic sense, that there isn't enough wealth to go around, and it's natural in a natural or ecological sense, there isn't enough food to sustain people. So when we look in that direction, when we look at the problem of scarcity, and we look at it as a problem of overpopulation, we don't look at scarcity in other ways. We don't look at it as a function of market relationships, for example, or of commodity forms, or of imperialism. Uh, technically, overpopulation, which is a term that Malthus did not use. Malthus used the term redundant population. And I like that term better, because I think that's more honest. Redundant means useless, right? So how is it that a human population could be useless? Well, what Malthus is referring to is that that population is useless because it, it, because it cannot sell its labor in the labor market, right? A population becomes useless when there's no one to buy the labor. But why, wasn't, why were people in that situation in the first place? This is where we get back to the relationship of human beings to landscape. What Malthus is, is talking about, and, and this gives the lie to his argument that there's naturally a disjuncture, He's writing in the midst of the agricultural revolution. So what was the agricultural revolution? In England, it came to three things, enclosures, right? So this meant that the system of commoning in England, the open field system was disbanded. And, and this had been happening from the 16th century onwards. Um, you may remember in Thomas More's Utopia, More writes about the sheep farming in England, taking over the landscape, and, and more has the phrase, sheep are eating men. Because as sheep farming expands, the smallholding peasant population is pushed off the land, and they and subsistence agriculture collapses, and right? They, they, so, I'm sorry, just to give um, the listeners a more trivial example, if they've ever seen Braveheart, <laughs> a movie like that where the Scots are being pushed off yeah. their property, that yeah. um, is part of this whole uh, transition where right. London somehow is taking all those islands over, the Irish, the Scots, the Welsh, and pretty soon they're going to start sending their, these displaced Scotsmen, for example, to other countries like India to make this process replicate itself everywhere. So please let Absolutely. me go back Absolutely. to Absolutely, yeah, and the enclosure movement is still ongoing. It's, it's still, enclosures began in the 15th, 16th century, but it's still ongoing. People are still being 
it's happening in Brazil, where we're, we're seeing clearing of forests and, and in, in set, you know, this expansion of, of beef farming and an enclosure which involves, secondly, therefore, the expropriation of small landholders. People who, uh, who own peasant holdings are pushed off the land, so that's the second process, and that creates the condition for a working class because now you have people who don't have the means of subsistence, they have to sell their labor to, to find subsistence. So, and this is also consonant, therefore, with, the, with urbanization, because as people are pushed off the land, they head towards the cities. So the third part of that is expulsion, right? As people are expelled from the land, they head towards the cities, and we end up with what Mike Davis has, has called the planet of slums, which is, Millions, if not billions, of people who were once peasants existing in shanty towns all across the world, in Mexico, in Kinshasa, in, you know, you name the city, that phenomenon is there. And in, and in some ways, in the United States, that even happened in the United States with the mechanization of, of agriculture. You know, blacks and whites from the South came to the cities and the United States became an overwhelmingly urban society. So this worldwide movement of urbanization is connected to that fundamental deforestation, that enclosure of agriculture. And the reason why I'm putting it like that is, is that that moment that you create overpopulation. You see, when Malthus looks out at 17, 18th century England and he sees all these landless peasants, who, these, all these people arriving in the seas, London, Bristol, Manchester, Birmingham, this is before the industrial era. So this is before factories existed to incorporate uh, that, that working group of people. So Malthus says, we have a redundant population. And that, and that population is an overpopulation. But where did the redundant population come from? It, it, it didn't exist in the 13th century. It didn't exist. It doesn't exist in many parts of the world. Do you see what I'm saying? It's a creation of our social relationships, of our market relationship. So once we get that Malthusian idea that the problem with, with our world is overpopulation, then we're no longer looking at the forces that created the redundant population in the first place. And so what is our response to overpopulation? Well, as you mentioned, one of the things that we, we did was we, tra we, we initiated transportation. This is where imperialism becomes useful, useful because it, the, it, the, the surplus population of the United Kingdom was exported to the colony of Georgia, to the West Indies, and ultimately to Australia. Right? That was the way that that population was dealt with. And, but in other countries, so in India, for example, when this happened under imperialist rule, that surplus population was dealt with through famine. People simply died in their millions. So this is where our plague comes in, right? This is where COVID-19 comes in. COVID-19 is going to operate like a force of depopulation. It's, it's, going, to, it's going to mostly kill the people who, who are deemed redundant, even though some of those people are called essential workers, yeah. right? You see, we, we could, these are the lowest paid jobs, the most expendable people, from the point of view of, I mean, it's not bond traders, it's not hedge fund man managers 
who are going to be dying in their tens of thousands. It's people who are deemed easily replaceable. This is the, the, the horror of the Malthusian viewpoint, that people are simply viewed as dispensable. And, and that's, that's, in some ways, what's going to play out here. The social Darwinist logic comes in because the people who are dispensable are not fit, right? They're, they're not fit for survival as it's understood in the terms of our society. In other words, they lack money. They lack property. That's what makes them unfit. Mm -hmm. and, and, the, and the most insidious use of this argument and this is back to, to, to Malthus, is the positive checks on population could be sterilization, right, as it was in Germany, or it could be mass murder. So, society, you know, in other words, part of the, the, the German, um, the, the, the language of the Nazi conquest of Eastern Europe was about living space, if you remember. It was about, about the German race needing more space and removing the inferior Slavs yeah. so that that area could be colonized with you know, people of German heritage. So yeah. this, is, this logic, this Malthusian logic, runs through the entire modern experience, and we're seeing it play out again during this pandemic. How do you think this is going to end up? Like, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, a couple of things. I think, you know, the, the, as I, I mentioned, I think the, the tragedy of, of modern experience in some respects is, is the way that certain words have, have blinded us, I think, you know, in, in Wittgenstein's sense that literally we, they have led us into a realm of nonsense. I mean, things that can't be meaningful. And I think one of those words is economic. Uh, we, we've treated economics as if it were a science of society, but we haven't paid attention enough to the way in which economics is a mediation of nature, right? I mean, we understand this now, it's tragically through, through pollution, through climate change, um, and I think also through the pandemic, that na nature is not, you know, the, the, the idea of of something that stands against us, something of which we're not a part, is simply an illusion. Um, so that's the first thing that I think we have to rethink some of our fundamental categories. We can no longer think of economics as simply the science of society or the science of markets. I mean, it, 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 that's, that's not going to work. We have to bring an ecological perspective to it. I think the second thing is we also have to give up on the idea that population is the way out of this issue. Um, because that, that is simply uh, a diversion from the, the, the fundamental institutions that need to be changed. I mean, let me give you an example. During the Irish famine, right, which is one of the, the most devastating famines in human history in terms of the number of people killed as a proportion of the population, the people who were in the British government thought of themselves as progressives. Um, they thought that, they, as you said, along the lines of the, the, the white man's burden, that they were doing something for the Catholic Irish that they were incapable of doing for themselves. But as the famine raged, the, the, the political economist in, in, in England still argued for the need to trade, to, to 
to bring food out of Ireland. Ireland was, was uh, a major producer of corn, which was wheat, but in those days it was called corn. So Ireland was, Ireland was exporting foodstuffs in the midst of the famine. And of course, the, the, the country was severely depopulated by people leaving for Australia for, and most famously for the United States. Um, so that, that, what I'm saying there is that that shows you that you can have people in charge. They can be rational, they can be liberal, they can, can think of themselves as humane, and they're still capable of producing a great atrocity, right? Which, because I think our people, we're living with this pandemic and we think that our government isn't capable of inflicting harm on us. But it's, I think history shows us that, that in fact, that's very possible. They, and they can be doing it for reasons that make sense to them, right? The British, the British economist who said, don't, don't leave the wheat in Ireland, export it, because this is, this is you know, if, if, we, if we do this, we're distorting the market. I'm sure that, they, that these were humane, civilized people. These were people who were graduates at Oxford and Cambridge, and they were members of every social club. So the, the people who are running the United States government today some of them may think that they have the best interest of human beings in kind, but then they might also be prepared to kill tens of thousands of people by not taking the measures that are necessary. So what are the measures that are necessary? Well, I think it's clear that, that if, as long as we privilege the economic, people will die. As long, as long as we say that the most important thing is to get the stock market up and running, is to restore consumer confidence, etc. People will die because we're not looking at the reality of what we're facing. The, and you know, we're, we're using a Malthusian logic that, that some people are simply redundant or surplus. In fact, what we should commit to is saving as many lives as possible. So I think there are things that could be done in the United States, but it's, it's outside of the realm of, of what people can even conceive of, is there's really no reason why the government couldn't pay people to stay home. Right? They're doing it in other countries. In other countries, people are being paid to stay home. Why couldn't that be done in the United States? Why, why must we give corporations billions of dollars to stabilize their share price rather than giving Americans direct support of, of the kind that Malthus would have disagreed with? Malthus would have disagreed with this. Right? But giving Americans direct support to protect life. I mean, I, I think in the long run, obviously, the economy, does, the economy does have to be reopened in the long run, but it can be done in a sensible way. The way that the Trump administration is doing it is, is simply social Darwinism. They are simply allowing the survival of the fist. Why can't they say, all right, we need to put these economic ideals over to the side and just get back to a absolute reality here? And you kind of answer the questions, it's been 400 years of institution building along these same ideas of, of mastering nature, improving it for, uh, you know, human purposes, which by 1800 gets translated as for the purposes of, of an elite that gets to, you know, live Downton Abbey or whatever. <laughs> or Mar-de-Lago, and then everybody else gets to, to be in that Darwinian world. I would like mm -hmm. to read something that Darwin wrote 
um, from the autobiography in October 1838, 15 months after I had begun my systematic inquiry, I happened to read for amusement Malthus on population and being prepared to appreciate the struggle for existence, which everywhere goes on from long continued observation of the habits of animals and plants. It at once struck me that under these circumstances, favorable variations would tend to be preserved and unfavorable ones be destroyed. The result would be the formation of a new species. To unpack that would take another hour. <laughs> but okay, I, okay, give me five minutes. All right, go. You got it. Five minutes. Okay, so I, I think I think Darwin Darwin's reading of Malthus was obviously momentous in, in terms of it gave him the the vision of the struggle for life as the origin of species, the subtitled. Um, and, and he understood that struggle for life in explicitly Malthusian terms. The numbers of a, of a given species in relation to the subsistence that nature provided for that species. And I think that that obviously does capture a truth about the natural world. I mean, there, there clearly are you know, instances, well, if, if you think of plants, you know, there's, there's finite, resources for the plant. There's only so much nitrogen in the soil. Um, so, what, what, you know, whereas there are more seeds than can use the nitrogen. So definitely, you know, it, one can see ways in which it applies to the natural world. But the problem is that scarcity, as I mentioned before, is, is mythical. I mean, in the sense of which scarcity in, in human societies is not the same phenomenon as scarcity in the natural world. And there are ways that that even animals can get around the issue of scarcity. I mean, later biology has, has shown that the struggle for existence is not always competitive, right? There are mutual aid dimensions to species interaction. And among humans, I think that it's completely fallacious. For, you know, this is where I think Darwin himself didn't make that leap, but Spencer and other social Darwinists did when they extrapolated from Malthus's model of natural scarcity into human society. Because humans obviously are a very cooperative species. You, you know, competition, I mean, it's, even, even a capitalist society depends upon cooperation. But, but, so to, to emphasize competition and not to see that cooperation is the basis for competition, in other words, if people don't get together in large companies and cooperate, they're not even going to be able to compete. So co cooperation is in some ways more fundamental. And if we cooperate in that direction, why can't we cooperate in other directions? Because, because I think the thing that also is missing from that social Darwinist reduction is that human beings are not simply animals in nature. You know, because I, the last part of that quotation that I think was interesting was that nature selects new species based on that species' ability to adapt. Well, I think the same is true of civilization. Civilization becomes an evolutionary force, and we've reached a point, you know, people who can thrive in our civilization are people who can co cooperate. But the next level of civilization is gonna require a different kind of human being, a less competitive person. Right? It's pretty clear that the few, if, if, we, if we fight for what is left, 
then you know we're doomed to extinction. The, the, uh, so the planet will, the climate will simply give up on us. We we have to cooperate, and that's the next the challenge. That that's a moral step that the human race has to make. And if we're more than animals, if we have a capacity for freedom, why do we assume that that's impossible? The materials that we have to imagine the future have been determined by the past. And in a sense, we don't have the ability to imagine. Somehow we've been robbed of that, of that liberating side of our own character. That's why we have writers. That's why we have writers. Exactly. We, we, we have writers, we have activists like yourself. We have people who keep the human imagination alive. If, if the human imagination were to totally give out, we would be done as a, that's our great evolutionary power, is that we can conceive of situations that enable us to thrive as a species. And it's, all, and it's probably the thing that is killing us, is our lack of imagination. Well, it's interesting. But, In my reading of Darwin, I, I've never actually seen him discuss the power of the imagination as an evolutionary feature that allows us to adapt to conditions. Like, for some reason, that wasn't part of what he was thinking about. Because I guess, you know, he was founding biology and he didn't really want to go into that so much. But when we look at him at a macroscopic level, this uh, battle between, you know, the sciences and the arts at the university level and of the emphasis of university administrators for the last 30 or 40 years to say, what do we need a literature program for? What I'm looking at, the, at also in Darwin's statement is he's saying, you know, as a result of this human competition will be the quote, formation of a new species. And for me, that is like right out of the dark mirror series that Netflix puts on. Like, what is this new species that we are going to be? Is it going to end up being, you know, Bill Gates version? of a new species right. where... Well, I, I wouldn't call that evolution. If, if, if the Bill Gates model of human society is to prevail, I would actually call that a devolution. I would call that atavism. I, I, I think the next evolution for human beings is, is moral, moral awareness. You know, that, I mean, we've reached the point where, you know, to put it in the terms that, that of... of by a citizen, right? We've reached a point where we've developed consciousness and of, uh, uh, of the moral status of other human beings. Doesn't mean we always act on it, but we're aware of it. We've extended some of that moral awareness to animals. So as Leopold points out, the next step is to extend it to the world at large. Mm -hmm. But we can't do it to the world at large until we do it to ourselves. See, that, that's, that's where I would depart with someone like Leopold. We're not, we're not going to be ethical actors in nature until we're ethical actors in society. Right. We, because it's our institutions. We, I mean, if, if, we, if we just think of, of ethics towards, you know, the, the natural world, separate from any social transformation, all we're basically saying is that some people will become morally aware, and that's like you know they'll be we'll be privatizing that element of 
of human awareness. It will just be in individuals. But in order for it to be meaningful, it has to be an institution. It has to, it has to be objectified in our actual practices. And so we need a different kind of society. That's, that's the evolution that I, I believe in. I, I, I don't think if, if you know, the, the, the university administrators and those people who simply think of the future in terms of the past and the present, that's the failure of imagination that will lead us to extinction. This Google, Amazon, Microsoft vision of us and our children being in lockdown, existing in some kind of, I don't know even, it's hard for me even to imagine what they're thinking of, but I'm just thinking of office cubicles, that everybody will be in their own little office cubicle, somehow manufacturing one little part of an assembly line of technology or something and that all of the physical things that we need will somehow farm you know farming and manufacturing will all be done by robots so that we won't need you know to have people out in the fields farming i i don't think that they're capable of articulating this by the way oh that's not it's not a vision right i i think going back to wittgenstein it's nonsense it's, it's, it's language that isn't saying anything. What they would like to do though, is, it seems is to individually package us. So, and that is their ideal. I think what COVID has done, I mean, you know, obviously it's still playing out and, and it's hard to make pronouncements that will stand for, you know, for, for the longest time. But I do think one of the things that, that COVID has shown is the, is the, exhaustion of politics. I think it's shown that we have, we've arrived on a dry shore, that there's no more, there's no, there's no vitality in our political system sufficient to match the crisis. I mean, what, what people are saying, I mean, if you, obviously if you listen to Donald Trump, uh, it's, it's indicative of how, how absurd he sounds, it's, of how inadequate his language is to the moment. I mean, we're in a moment that, that really shifts the meaning of, of so many of the fundamental things about society. And the old language will not apply. You know, I mean, it's, it's well known that, I mean, as I said, that if you think about the, the Irish famine, the way that, that totally revolutionized, not necessarily in a good way, but it just, it meant massive transformation for the people of Ireland. And COVID means transformation for us. Our leaders keep talking about going back to to what we were, but that's the sense in which they're not leaders, right? They're not really our leaders because they don't have a direction. They don't have a direction. What they have is is a kind of empty ritual language. Yeah, and it's up to us to create that language that actually does represent a direction. So it's May 15th, 2020. And I really appreciate our discussion, Jerry. You're uh, Thank you so much. A fabulous intellect and a true humanist.